introduction, I was going to make the comment, which I think is true, is uh, many people think that the only thing Church of Christ wants to talk about is baptism. And Brother Ritter preached on baptism, now I'm going to preach on baptism. So maybe there's some truth to that. But there's a reason there's some truth to that. And the reason being is so many uh, different religious groups want to de-emphasize baptism. and said, well, why do you folks talk about baptism so much? Well, it's very simple. That's the point on which we have disagreement. Uh, we don't disagree with the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Catholics on the need to believe in Jesus. We don't disagree with them on many things about the Bible, but we do disagree with them on the topic of baptism. So it's only natural that we would have a lot of discussion about baptism. If it wasn't such a point of controversy, perhaps we wouldn't have to teach on it so much, but we do. And so what I want to speak to you about this morning is the purpose and meaning of baptism. And this is an important topic for for two different groups of people. First of all, those people who haven't been baptized, they need to understand how important baptism is and why they need to obey that command from the Lord. But also those who have been baptized need, as Brother Rader talked about, and I'm going to talk about in a little different fashion this morning, those who have been baptized need to reflect on their baptism and what it means for them even decades perhaps after their baptism. And to get started on this conversation, I want to, I want to back up just a little bit and just reflect on the fact that there are people who are going to be lost and people who are going to be saved. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 and verse 41, we see two groups of people described. In the first, in verse 34, Jesus here speaking about the final day of salvation says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, I'm sorry, these are the, the those who will be saved. Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then in verse uh, 35, he said, I'm sorry, in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And I'll drop that passage off the bottom of the screen. I hope the rest of my slides don't do that. Well, what I want you to see here is clearly there are two groups of people, the lost and the saved. And the saved are going to be rewarded, but the lost are going to be punished by God. And I don't think anyone would relish the prospect of thinking about what it must be like to be punished by God. And so a really important question then arises, if there's two groups of people, the lost and saved, is there any process by which a person who is lost can become saved? That becomes a very important question. You know, there are people in this world that teach that that, that that cannot happen. You know, the Calvinists really teach that the lost can't be saved. That if you're born one of the people who God did not pick, and you are one of those who's going to be lost, then there's nothing you can do to come to God. And vice versa, if you're one of the people that God has picked to be saved, there's nothing you can do not to come to God, that you're going to be saved no matter what. And so it becomes a very important question to understand, is there anything that can move a person from being lost to being saved? And the Bible clearly teaches that there is. For example, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we see this. It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And we have seen and testify the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14. Now, clearly then, God has provided some kind of process whereby those who are lost can be saved. That's the whole point in which Jesus came. So now the important question becomes, well actually there's a few questions now we have about this process. I want to pose three questions we have about this process of how become, a person becoming lost can be saved. What is that process? Three questions about that process. First of all, what part does God play in this process? And I see my slides are going to be messed up because I forgot to make sure I had the same font. <laughs> so I apologize. 
What part do men play in this process? And really, this is the most important question for us in this audience. Is there anything we can do? Is there anything I can do for myself as part of this process to ensure that I can become saved and not be lost? And especially, is there anything that I'm responsible to do? And then the last question, which you can't see on my slide, <laughs> is what is the final step in this process? You know, if you have a process and you're changing from one state to another, there must be a final point at which that change takes place. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But what's the final step in that process of being saved? So what part does God play? In John chapter 3 and verse 16, we see this passage well known to most people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And we, so we see God has done a part in this process for men to be saved. He sent His Son. And really the Bible, the entire Bible is the story of how Jesus came to fulfill that role and what that role is. So we could spend many sermons just talking about God's part here in the plan and how He worked out His plan. But the fact of the matter is God has played a part in this process in which lost men can become saved. But what about men? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So we see here that the people who are going to enter into heaven, which is be the saved, are going to be the people who do the will of my Father. Now, what does that mean, to do the will of the Father? Or what does that entail? And that's really the question we have before us. Because if there's something I have to do, then if I don't do that, then obviously I'm not going to be saved. Even though many people teach there's nothing that you have to do, Jesus clearly says here, the person who does the will of His Father is going to be saved. There's just no question about that. I want to give this illustration talking here about process and talking about this final step. I want you to imagine here's a young, two young people, a young man, young woman, they don't know each other. They're not married. Obviously, if they don't know each other, they're not married. So they're in a state of being single. We would say, well, they're single. They're not married. Now, what's the process that someone has to go through from being single and not married to getting married? And at what point does one become married? I mean, you're, you're not married or you're married. There's one or the other, right? You can't be both married and not married. By logic, it just says that, that can't be so. So there has to be a point at which something changes. What does it take to get there, and what is that change? And so here's a couple... They don't know each other, and then they get introduced by someone. And so now they've been introduced, they know each other, they're familiar, they're acquainted, we would say, but they're not married, they're still single. And perhaps when upon being introduced, they, they take a liking to each other, and so they go out on a first date. You know, a lot of relationships never progress past that first date, do they? They have a first date, and that doesn't go so well, and that's that. But they have this first date, and so now they, you know, they, they've expressed an interest in each other, but they're not married. And then, you know, the, the first date, let's say the first date does go well, so they start, we say, called dating. Or, you know, when I was a kid, they called going steady. I don't know what to call it now. But dating, or they're going steady, so they date on a regular basis, and, and the inference, they don't date anybody else. So now they've shown a really high level of interest in one another, but they're not married. And so finally, the young man, he gets all worked up about it to the point that he can't stand it anymore. So he asks her uh, to marry him, and she says yes, and so they get engaged. Well, this is an interesting thing. Because now they both agreed that they're going to be married. They're both agreed. He wants to marry her, and he knows that she wants to marry him. 
She wants to marry him, and she knows that he wants to marry her. They're in perfect agreement on this, but yet they're not married. You know, many people try to teach the salvation is like that. All that matters is that you want to be saved. And, you know, if you believe in Jesus and you want to be saved, that makes you saved. But here's two people, they believe in each other and they want to be married to each other, but they're not married. Not yet. Then they go on and they plan the wedding. Those men who have been through this process know that women really love planning weddings. There's a lot of detail goes into planning the wedding. Even if you get, now my brother, he, he, he and his wife, they just went up to the courthouse one day and got married. But there was still a little bit of planning involved with that. Uh, my mom and dad came to serve as witnesses. They had to get an appointment with, the, with the, the judge or whoever it was at the court. So even a little bit, they had to both agree to be at the same spot at the same time and, and win the officers. There's a little bit of planning at least has to go into planning a wedding. Most have a lot. So you can be sitting there engaged in the wedding planning and plan the dress and the flowers and the music and the event and the place, and, but you're still not married. But then what happens? Then you have the actual wedding ceremony. And even at the beginning of the ceremony, they're still not married. But then you reach that point in the ceremony, they exchange vows, and then the preacher will, or whoever's officiating the ceremony will look at him and say, I now pronounce you man and wife. And then they say, I present to you Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And now we say they're married. There was a final step upon which there was a wedding ceremony, and they were pronounced married. And that pronouncement has significant impacts. I you know, started this new job at ADC, and so I had to go find some paperwork for ID, and I was trying, having trouble finding my social security cards. So I was digging through my files the other day trying to find, you know, social security cards and birth certificates and things like that, and I came across our wedding certificate. I can't remember, I didn't look, Brother Rader, but I'm pretty sure your signature's on it, because Brother Rader officiated our wedding. That event is so important that we document it with a piece of paper, and that piece of paper has legal consequences with the state of Tennessee, and it has to be signed by somebody represented by the state of Tennessee that documents that that event happened at that time, and after that point, people are married. And so that's the kind of process. And so the question we want to say now is, what is the process for being saved? And at what point does one change from being a person who's lost to a person who's saved? And if you start reading in the Bible, a lot of people do this. They open up their Bible, and they find a passage and say, uh, you know, God so loved the world that whoever believeth in Him. And it's, oh, there's belief, so if you believe, you're saved. Well, the thing is, the Bible says many things save us. Just like on this, I'm going to back this chart for just a moment. How many people get married that never were introduced? It's awful hard to marry someone you've never met. Well, I don't know, these days and times, strange things happen. But it generally, it's awful hard to marry someone you haven't met. You generally don't marry someone you haven't, engaged, haven't dated Occasionally, I guess you might say somebody uh, gets married that hasn't been engaged. If you say these people in Vegas that just say, hey, let's go. But even then, if you agree to go get married at one of those all-night places in Vegas, you st that's, you're engaged for an hour, aren't you? Or at least however long it takes to get there. It's just you can't get through this process without going through all these steps. And so if we look at salvation, we see there's many things that are mentioned in the Bible as saving us. For example, it's, the Bible says those who call on the Lord will be saved. The Bible says God saves us. Does that mean that that's the only thing, that God just, God just saves and that's it? No, because the Bible also says that belief is required to be saved. Or how about this, Jesus, I apologize for the font, <laughs> but we get the idea. The Bible says we're saved by confession. The Bible also says we're saved by preaching. Does that mean if a preacher stands up and preaches at you that you're saved, or does that mean there's something else involved? It means you have to hear the word, you have to repent. You have to hear, as we just said. There's baptism. The Bible says baptism 
saves us. The Bible also says the gospel saves us. And the Bible says we're saved by hope. Does that mean if I wish I go to heaven that I'm going to go to heaven? No. But there has to be some hope involved for someone to go to heaven. And the Bible also says we're saved by grace. So we're saved by all these things. The question is, which one of these is the final step that makes a person saved? That's the question we want to look at. And the, and the, the point we're arguing this morning is that baptism is that step. And we're going to proceed to show that. But before we do that, I want to just back up a little bit and look for a couple of things about this step that would have to be involved in this step. Now, let's just remind ourselves why people need saving to begin with because of the problem of sin. The Bible says whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And in Isaiah, Isaiah writes, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. So the problem we have is sin, and sin separates people from God. And sin is why we have uh, the need to be saved to begin with. It's why people are lost. And the Bible makes this clear then that the solution to sin is to be rid of it. How can that happen? In Isaiah chapter 59 we read this, For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sin. So being saved, having our sins remitted has involved uh, with the shedding of Jesus' blood. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. So whatever the final step is that's going to put one into a saved condition has to involve the removal of sin. That's the point we want you to see. Now I want to show you something else here about the saved. The Bible teaches clearly that the saved are in Christ. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So those who are in Christ have no condemnation. Now what does that say about those who are outside of Christ? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, if you want to be new, you need to be in Christ. And it says in Ephesians chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. Remember we said sin makes one far off from God. And now here Paul says in Ephesians that if you're in Christ, you've been made near again. So, your problem's been solved. And just a few more verses on this one. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they, may also, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So where is salvation at? It's in Christ. It's not outside of Christ. So those who are lost must be outside of Christ, right? If you're saved, if the saved are in Christ, and only those in Christ are saved, then by definition those outside Christ must be the lost. And that from childhood you have been known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So salvation's in Christ. I think we've made that point here now. So now let's think about this final step again. What must be involved? First of all, the final step must be one in which your sins are remitted or forgiven or taken away. It must be one that puts you in Christ. And it, when that happens, you move from a state of being lost to a state of being saved. I just think that's pretty simple to understand. I'm a little confused sometimes why people have so much trouble understanding it, but I think it's pretty straightforward. So let's just make some points now about baptism. But baptism is for the removal of sins. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I mean, could you state that any plainer? I really don't understand how Paul, uh, uh, Peter could have said it any plainer if he'd tried. 
that the purpose of baptism is for the remission or the removal of sins. And so we should do that. And then Paul was told, when Paul was, uh, saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was told to go and await, it'd be told to him what to do. And Ananias comes and he's teaching Paul and he says, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I do not know how many denominational preachers I have heard talk about Paul being saved on the road to Damascus when he saw Jesus and believed in him. And yet after he leaves the road to Damascus and goes and waits for Ananias and Ananias comes and talks to him. Ananias tells him he needs to have his sins washed away. Now let me ask you something. If Paul's sins were not washed away, how could he be saved before he was baptized? It just can't be. Paul, I mean, was, was clearly not saved at the point Ananias talked to him. That's why Ananias had to come speak to him and preach to him the truth of the gospel. And it says he would be, his sins would be washed away. And so we see that baptism results in a removal of sin. Baptism also is a point at which a person converts from being lost to being saved. We can see that through some of these passages that indicate this. In Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, Peter says there is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. So right here it says baptism saves. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And Peter goes on to explain that this is not some magic of the water. The act says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, a person who baptizes is doing that because they're meeting the command of God. They're willing to obey that command. Now, some people might argue here, well, it's true maybe that baptism has some part of salvation, but you haven't proved that this is the step that puts a person from being lost to saved. Because it doesn't actually, it just says baptism saves, but you know the Bible also says faith saves. And so you haven't proved to me yet that this is the final step. Well, let's look at that. Baptized into Christ. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, Paul says, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And as we had in our scripture reading this morning, or do you not know that as many of us as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death. Now, I want to point something out here. I just want to stop. There's one more path. I want to check and see if I have one more verse. In Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether slaves or free. And that body there being the body of Christ. So the Bible clearly says here that we are baptized into Christ. Now I want to take just a moment here and ask you a question. I hope you don't think I'm being too overbearing, but I think it's very important to understand this. Do you understand what the word into means? I want to stop for a few moments here at this point in the lesson and reflect on the word into. Because the word into is a very important word in all these passages. Several years ago, I think Lindsay was about six years old. Because when this event happened, she thought it was very funny because it involved embarrassing her dad. My mom and dad, they moved into town now, but they had a place out in the country out there. And on the back side of the property, they got a little river that runs there, a little tiny river. And my dad likes to trot line for catfish. So we used to always go out there in the spring and put out trot lines. So on the back of his property, he's got a little boat ramp, just a few feet long, and he kept a little john boat tied up down there, a little 12-foot john boat tied up so he could get out there and run trot lines and run up down that river and fish every once in a while. So one time when we were there visiting, we took Lindsay, and we were going to go down and run the trot lines one morning. Well, that old John boat had a couple spots where he had been abused, and it leaked just a little bit. And there's always some rain. So you'd go down there, and that John boat have a good bit of water in it a lot of times. 
So my dad kept a little plastic bucket down in there, a little you know, butter margarine bucket or something, to dip the water out with. So me being the young man, and you know, my dad was, you know, he was an old man, you know, he just, <laughs> I was the one that dip, leaned down to dip the water out. So what I did is I got down that dock and I leaned over that John boat and I put my hand on that one corner of the John boat and pushed it down a little bit in that back corner so the water would all run to the one end. I could dip the water out. And I wasn't paying attention and I got my weight leaned in a little too far and I put the back corner of that John boat under the water just a little bit. Now those of you who had experience with small boats know what happened next. The water rushed over the side of that boat and it just went whoosh. <laughs> and I was going in the river. I knew I was going in the river the moment that, it, that I had all my weight on the corner of that boat and it went under the water. And I knew it, and I just ducked my shoulder and rolled with it because I didn't want to smack my head on the end of that boat. And I, next thing I know, I'm standing up in the river, the water about up to here, and Lindsay laughing so hard I thought she was going to die because she just thought that was the funniest thing ever, her daddy falling in the river. Now I want to ask you a question. How did I get into the river? I got into the river through the process of falling like a fool. Before that, I was in the state of being outside the river and dry, and after the moment of falling, I was in the river and wet. There was a change of state. You know, anytime you get into the river, you have to get into a river through some process. You can get in by falling, you can get in by jumping, you can get in by wading. There's multiple ways you can get in the river, but there's got to be some process to get into the river. Everybody in this building came into this building this morning. Most people walked into the building. A few people in our congregation, they roll into the building in a wheelchair. We've got several. The little children get carried into the building. But you've got to get into the building through some process. Let me just point out to you that, too, there's a change of state when you enter into the building. It's pretty nice weather today, but this winter, when it's coming some freezing rain or something, we'll consider it a blessing to be inside the building. And there'll be a change of state when you cross the threshold of that door back there from being outside where it's cold and wet and being inside where it's warm and dry. When I was a kid, we used to like to climb trees. That's how we got into the tree, by the process of climbing. Now, I want you to think about this passage. Do you not know as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? I want you to just notice something here about this passage. What's Paul trying to tell the Romans here? What's he focused on? Is he focused on being baptized into Christ? No. What he's really focused on is the second part there, baptized into his death. He's trying to remind them something. He just takes for granted that they know they were baptized into Christ. Everybody that's in Christ has been baptized into Christ. Do you understand that, what that means? I want you to think about this. Can you fall in a river you're already in? Can you walk into a building you're already in? You can't fall into a river you're already in. You can't climb into a tree you're already in. You can't walk into a building you're already in. And brethren, you cannot be baptized into Christ if you're already in Him. It's just that simple. And when a denominational preacher stands up and tells you you're saved before you're baptized, he's saying you're saved before you're in Christ. And we know that can't be true because it just said that salvation is in Christ. And you can't get in him without being baptized into him. That's the point. If you're baptized into him, then you can't be in him before you're baptized. Let's look at some examples real quickly. I'm not going to read all these passages. We'll just mention these. 
But we just want to point out that when we look at examples of people being baptized, we can see those examples in the book of Acts in the New Testament. We can read actual examples of people being baptized. And without fail, every time we look at examples of people in the, in the, or people being saved, and every time we look in the New Testament in the book of Acts of actual people being saved, we see that they were baptized. In the very first gospel sermon Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching, and in Acts chapter 2 verse 37, he had told them that they had, uh, they had persecuted and they had crucified the Son of God, and they were pricked to their hearts and asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? And so from that, we know that they believed the message that Peter, Peter preached to them. And then Peter says to them, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so we see baptism came last. And then they did that. And there were thousands of them that were baptized on that day. The Samaritans, we saw that they were believed and believing they were baptized. In Acts chapter 8, we read about the Ethiopian eunuch. He was traveling down the road, reading from his Old Testament scriptures from the book of Isaiah. And Philip was sent by the Holy Spirit to talk to him. And so the man asked what he was reading. And it says that Philip uh, began at that spot and preached unto him Jesus. And when he got done preaching unto him Jesus, the eunuch said, Here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe, you may. And so we see... In Acts chapter 8 and verse 36, the eunuch says he did believe, and he confesses his belief in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. And then it says, Philip and the eunuch went in down into the water and he baptized him. So that was the final step. After that, the eunuch was rejoicing. Why was he rejoicing? Because he knew he was saved. That's easy enough to see. Saul, we've already talked about Saul, that he was baptized after he was uh, confronted on the road to Damascus. Cornelius. And all his household, they heard the gospel. And it says after they heard the gospel, he and his whole household were, uh, were baptized. Lydia, the seller of purple, meets some of the uh, apostles there. And, and she hears their teaching and she was baptized. The Philippian jailer had the apostles there in the prison. And there was the earthquake and, and he was in a panic. And they told him not to uh, hurt himself. And he asked, what must I do? And they said, believe and he believed, and then we see that he repented because he washed their stripes where they had been beaten, and then it says they all went out that same hour of the night and was baptized. So we see this through all these examples. The Corinthians, it says, believing, were baptized. We see all these examples in the New Testament that baptism is a final step. So we can see that clearly. Baptism puts one into Christ. Baptism is the point at which sins are removed. That's why Paul was told, Saul was told to have his sins washed away. And in the Bible case of conversion, we see baptism occurs last. It's the last step. So we've established that. The purpose of baptism is to wash one's sins and put one into Christ. That's the purpose. Now the question I want to focus on for the second or the last half of the, I don't know if it's a half, I better not look at that clock. The last portion of the sermon, won't be quite as long, is why baptism? This seems to really bother a lot of people. As to why baptism. I don't understand. Well, I don't understand that. I don't understand why getting wet makes one saved. Or I don't understand you people think there's something about the water. And, and I, you know, my personal opinion is the reason most people have trouble understanding it is because they don't want to accept it. Because if you accept that a person has to be baptized, you might have to accept that they have to do other things. I think that's a big part of that. But let's talk about why baptism for a minute. You know, there are certain things in the Bible that God commands, and He doesn't really give an explanation for. You know, when He was questioning Job, He basically pointed out to Job, hey, I've got all these questions uh, and, and I don't have to explain everything to you. And Job repented of that, realizing that. But you, know, you can read in the Old Testament law 
all these complicated things of the temple worship. Like one of the things I always think about when we studied through that a couple times in here. You know, the chief priest had, a, had to wear this robe, and the robe had to look little pomegranates. And God specified exactly how the pomegranates had to look, and what, you know, all this. Why did God do that? Why did God make, I, I don't know. I mean, we can hazard some guesses. And so sometimes we look at th- some things in the Bible, and it's, it's not clear to us, you know, why did God choose to do something exactly that way? But I think in the case of baptism, we can read some of these passages of baptism, and we can see why God chose baptism as a final step. You realize God could have chosen any final step he wanted to? God could have said, uh, uh, believe and burn some incense and you'll be saved. God could have said that. God could have said, he who believes and does the hokey pokey and turns himself about shall be saved. And people say, now Lynn, you're just being, that's a little sacrilegious. You shouldn't say stuff like that. But God could have done that if he wanted to. God could have said, he who believes and says the sinner's prayer shall be saved, but he didn't say that either. Is that any less sacrilegious than saying God said, could have said somebody done the hokey pokey? God didn't say either one. What did God say, and why did he pick baptism? I think we can see some reasons that God picked baptism. One, one story I heard one time, I was trying to remember, this is one of those, you, you ever have those memories you can't remember if you were present or you heard somebody else tell it? Because <laughs> we were going to some debates one time with a, with a Baptist preacher and he made some comments, and, and then I heard someone coming out. I can't remember now if I heard the preacher say it myself or heard somebody else talk about him saying it, because it was one of those I went one night and didn't go the other day. You know? But he made this comment. Somebody was asking him, he said, well, why do you tell people to tell the sinner's prayer? It's not in the Bible. And he said, well, we find that, you know, we believe people are saved as soon as they believe, but, but we find that that makes people uncomfortable because they can't tie an exact moment to they feel saved. And so we tell them to sell that sinner's prayer, and, and, and that's a good thing, and it gives them a moment at which they feel like they can know they were saved. You realize what he just said? He just said they had an idea that's better than God's idea. According to him, they believe that God saves in the moment of belief, but God forgot to give people something to tie that to so they would know. And so they had to give people something like that instead. I'm going to tell you, God didn't forget that. God gave us a moment where we can know we're saved, and that moment is in the moment of baptism. And not only did God just pick something, He picked something with meaning. And I think that's the thing Brother Rader was talking about this morning. I want to spend just a few more moments here talking about the meaning of baptism. We've established the purpose of baptism. Let's talk about the meaning for a moment. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 Titus, uh, writing here to Titus says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We were just reading earlier in the Scripture reading in Romans chapter 6 about a person being born to walk a new life after baptism. And Jesus said a person had to be born again. Now right here, the author talks about the washing of regeneration. Now, regeneration is not a word we use a lot, but what that means is to be made alive again. That's what regenerate means. And so what would the washing of regeneration be? Well, it would be baptism, because baptism is the moment at which a person is made alive again. So he's referring here to baptism. I want you to notice what he says. He saved us according to his mercy. He saved us, I'm just going to replace it, through baptism. He just got finished saying that our salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but through baptism. 
Some people want to say, well, when you're baptized, you're trying to save yourself. You're trying to commit some work of righteousness. This passage right here says that that's not the case. This passage clearly says that when we are baptized, we are taking advantage of something God has provided for us, not trying to give God something of of merit. And so God picked baptism. He picked it on purpose. And that's His work, not ours. And so what does it mean? Well, baptism reminds us of deliverance from the bondage of sin. Look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's talking about the Jewish nation when they came out of the land of Egypt. He says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so you remember when the, Egyptian, when the Jews came out of the bondage of the land of Egypt and they had to cross the Red Sea? And it says, when they crossed the sea, a cloud moved over and covered them to hide them from the Egyptians. He says, they were covered in water. There's water above them, there's water all around them. And the writer here refers to that as a form of baptism. And he's reminding them that that baptism delivered them from the bondage of, of, of the Egyptians. But Christians are said to be delivered from the bondage of sin. And so when we're baptized, we need to be reminded of the fact that it's a release from the bondage of sin. We're free now. We're free from that. And when someone's been baptized, they don't have to worry about their past sins. They've been made free from those sins. Similar in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, many people don't think about this event this way, but the, but the writer here does, Peter does. He's talking here about the people before the time of the flood in Noah's day. It says, "...who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared for a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water." There's an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. <coughs> I want to focus on this part right here that's highlighted. He says here that eight souls were saved through water, being Noah and his wife and his, his three sons and their wives, eight people on the ark. Many people think the ark saved Noah and his family from the flood. This passage says Noah was saved by the flood. You see that? I want to ask you a question. What was it Noah was saved from? What was the problem God was fixing then? He was fixing the problem of a world filled with sin. That was God's solution. He used water to wash sin off the earth, quite literally. And in that process, save Noah and his family from that. And the Bible says here that there's a type now which saves us. There's something similar today that saves us in a similar way, and that's baptism. Now, a lot of people here want to make the similarity and say, well, baptism is figurative, so it's figurative of our salvation. But the passage doesn't say that. The passage says baptism saves us. What's the figure? The figure is between being saved by water, Noah, and us being saved by water today from sin. That's the figure. And so we need to be thinking about being delivered from sin when we're baptized. Baptism is also a symbol of washing. That just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? We see that in the Old Testament. We see a similar example in the story of Naaman the leper. This guy, Naaman, had leprosy. He was a great leader in his country. And he found out that there was a prophet that could tell him how to be cured of his leprosy, which at that time was uncurable. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you shall be clean. In 2 Kings 5 and verse 14, So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. People today say, Well, I don't understand how being dipped in water does anything. Well, tell that to Naaman. He dipped seven times. And he got the removal. Now, was he 
cured of leprosy, but can, can you just take anybody today and go dip them seven times and cure them of leprosy? No, because it wasn't the water that did it, it was God. But it's a symbol of washing. And we see in the, in the New Testament, we see this is, is portrayed as a washing away of sins. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, what are you waiting for? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. We need to think about that when we think about our baptism is that our sins have been washed away. The washing of regeneration we just talked about. And notice in 1 Corinthians, he talks about this big list of sins that were prevalent in Corinth. Corinth was a very wicked city. They had all kinds of immorality and adultery and homosexuality and thievery and stealing and just all kinds of bad problems. And he describes all these people and he's looked at the Corinthians, he says, and such were some of you in past tense. They're not like that anymore. Why not? Because you were washed. Their sins have been washed away. Baptism symbolizes a new life. Brother Raiders talked about that this morning. We need to remember John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus said, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But when does that happen? As we saw in Romans, this happens in baptism. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You see that? I think sometimes people miss that. When does, when does your new life start? At baptism. And so it's a new life that we begin. We need to remember that. We need to walk according to the new life, not according to the old life. And baptism is also a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's a lot of symbols in one act. See the wisdom of God in that? We see the washing away of sins. We see being born again. We see a death, a burial, and a resurrection. That's not all. We also see in this same verse a way to identify with Christ and be like Christ. We talk about, you hear, you hear a lot of denominational preachers, oh, we need to be like Christ. What would Jesus do? Well, one of the things Jesus did is Jesus was baptized. We were talking about that this morning. He didn't baptize for the remission of sins, but he was baptized. But we can identify Christ. So it says in verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of the resurrection. You see that? We're united together in the likeness of his death. That's something we all share in common with Jesus. We need to remember that as Christians, even many years after our baptism. And then finally, one more point I want you to see about baptism that we see in baptism is a promise of the resurrection. In verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. And so we see in, the, in, the, in baptism, in the coming up out of baptism, not just walking on a new life here, but a promise of the resurrection to come. Can you see maybe why Jesus or about why God chose baptism as a final step of salvation? How, how could anybody work that many figures and lessons for us today into one single act? God picked baptism to do that. Just make one more point. I don't have a slide on here, but anyone can be baptized. I mean, baptism is one of those things that doesn't require much, just requires some water. You know, anywhere there's people, there's water. Sometimes people will make the ridiculous claims like, well, those 3,000 people baptized on the day of Pentecost, you know, they didn't have enough water in Jerusalem to do that. You know, that was a dry area. They don't have that much water. You realize that during the, 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 the 
Pentecost in the holy times, there was up to a million people in the city of Jerusalem and all their animals. You telling me that a city with a million people doesn't have a water supply? It's just foolishness. There isn't any place on earth where there's people that you can't find water. And so God has provided us this symbol so that we can know we're saved. It's very simple. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to be in Christ. And the only way to get in Christ is to be baptized. You're dead in your sins now. The Bible talks about being dead in sin, being slaved to sin. You can be buried with Him, have your sins washed away, and be raised to walk in newness of life. If you have any need to do that this morning or commit, convince, or confess any other sins, perhaps you're a Christian, you've forgotten about the symbology of baptism and what it means, how you ought to be living now, and you've fallen back into sin, any need you have, please come as we stand and sing.